Well, welcome. It's great to have you here as we continue. We've got just a couple of more weeks this week and next week uh, for our series, Empty and Filled, where we're discovering the meaning and the message of Lent. And we have been uh, traveling on this journey for quite a while, and I'm looking forward to getting to Holy Week and changing things up. We'll have our Good Friday service. You'll want to be a part of that. It's a powerful service, a little different than we normally do on a Sunday morning, but you'll want to be here. That is a part of this series as we move all the way into Easter. And then, of course, Easter Sunday, you're going to want to be here for the celebration. But right now, we've been discussing what Lent means. It is a time, of course, of focusing on our sin and those places that God still needs to mature us and help us. It is a a time of focusing on emptying ourselves of distractions, uh, unnecessary and often distracting pleasures. Um, That's your coffee, your chocolate, your whatever it is, your Facebook, the things that you've given up. And then, of course, to focus us on our need for a Savior that is found in Jesus Christ. And so today, we continue that that, uh, series, and we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Hebrews chapter 10, however you get your Bible, whether it's on an electronic device, whether it's the book. If you do not have a Bible, we have the book form right in front of you. Go ahead and open that up um, to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to begin at verse 1. This is a bit of a lengthy passage, so let's sit together as we read this. Hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshiper would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for Me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about Me in the scroll, I have come to do Your will, My God. First He said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then He said, Here I am. I have come to do Your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all, for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, He says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put My laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then He adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, 
Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. This is the Word of God for the people of God, and we respond, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, come and help us, for this passage is strange, and we are a long time removed from it. Come and bring clarity, and help us to hear the good news through the strength and through the witness of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here we are. Hebrews. One of the most difficult books, and I would say it's difficult because of its strangeness. Um, this was a, a book that uh, many will attribute to Paul. Some will say for various scholarly reasons. It's not, about, it's not Paul, but maybe somebody who was trained by Paul. And uh, they are writing, of course, to Hebrews. Now, that's a generic term that probably means uh, that it is Hebrew uh, Jews who have converted and believed and trusted in Jesus Christ for their Messiah. As we look at the historical background, what, what, what the writer is writing into is a group of people who, because they believed in Jesus and trusted Him as the Messiah and the One who saves uh, the world, they were beginning to have persecution. And persecution from both sides. Because they were being persecuted by the Jews who were saying, you have abandoned your faith, you have given up on your traditions, and you have gone off in a, in a negative direction. And from the Roman and Greek culture around them. Because they were the ones who would say, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. And so from both sides, they were getting pressure and persecution was beginning to happen. And so scholars will tell us that the writer wanted to write to the Hebrews and make sure that he encouraged them to stand firm in the midst of persecution. I know it's coming from both sides. And so he begins this beautiful letter to them that would have made a lot more sense to them. And for us, it's going to take some time. So I need to give you just a little bit of the literary background. This is persuasive rhetoric. This is a very popular writing style of the time. And this writer was trying to persuade these Hebrews to stand firm in the midst. And so he does this by a lot of comparison. This is the rhetoric. And he compares uh, Jesus to a lot of the Jewish traditions. Now, this has gotten some people into struggle because it can be used to say, well, the Jewish traditions are no longer necessary or they're bad. And it has even in some extreme circumstances led to some kind of anti-Semitism and that kind of thought. But I have it on good authority. My great friend, Brad Kelly, who is, uh, uh, Dr. Brad Kelly, who is our Old Testament scholar at Point Loma Nazarene University, says that is not the intention. The intention in the writing is to encourage. The intention in the writing is to help them stand firm. And yes, he's comparing and contrasting, but he is, and, and he comes to the ultimate point that Jesus is superior to all those things, but he's in no way saying they were bad, they were unnecessary, they were terrible, you should throw them out and in fact persecute those who follow them. That was not his intention. Did you hear me? Okay, I want to be very clear about that. But what he was saying is they were a shadow. They were something that pointed toward what God would ultimately accomplish in Jesus. So he says that Jesus is superior to the Torah, to Moses, to angels, to priests, to covenant, and then our passage today to sacrifices or the animal sacrificial system. Aren't you so glad you came to church today? (laughs) And this is where the strangeness begins to come in because... Most of you get your meat at Meyer. 
And it comes all pretty packaged with no blood or gore or anything along those lines. And so, what I need you to do is to put on your National Geographic hat. Because whenever you watch Nat Geo, how many of you watch Nat Geo or National Geographic or read National Geographic magazine? Uh, whenever we do this, we seem to like put ourselves in a different mindset where we're like okay with the strangeness of somebody else's culture or their experiences or those kinds. So everybody take out your Nat Geo hat, put it on, because we're going to go into this culture. We're going to look at what this means so we can understand the good thing that the writer is trying to encourage these folks for. He is really talking about Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, when it comes to these animal sacrifices. And you can read about this in Leviticus 16. If you're having trouble sleeping at night, it's a great remedy. Uh, read it. Uh, you'll learn all about the sacrifices that take place here. And these were the sacrifices for sin. And sin offering is that day of atonement. And so I want to, I, I need to help you understand what this means, because otherwise it just seems like a gory trip to the butcher's office that somehow merged with a worship service. And so I need us to understand that this idea is very radical when it was instituted way back by Moses, way back in the day. Moses and God got together, because God was going to do something radical. God was not going to be seen as a God who was way off like the Egyptian gods. God was not going to be the God that toyed around with human beings. And, and just, you know, if you'll just give me enough, then maybe I won't kill you or maybe I won't smite you. God said, my desire is to be among my people. And so God instituted, um, with Moses' help, a way to do that. This is going to be uh, the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was to be a place where the presence of God dwelt in the midst of His people. Can everybody see that? You might have to lean in. Sorry. Um, here, I'll draw it nice and dark. Alright, here we go. Maybe I'll, I'll try something, a different color. It's a square in the middle of the board. Okay, there you go. <laughs> But this tabernacle was where God was going to dwell in the midst of His people. He was not going to be way off, off far and distant. He was going to be right there. And because God is so good and so holy, there is a struggle. Because people are not. And there was trying to, God wanted to be very clear about how this relationship was going to work. And so the people were asked to, um, to tent themselves in good, in good places. And so there were three that were kind of up this way when the tabernacle, when they would camp, would be there. And then there would be more that would be out this way. And they would camp in their tribes, in their family groups. And they would do that, and there would be three here, and then there would be some here. And the priests would be uh, around here to do the ministering. But God wanted them to, God wanted to be very clear. That's what Leviticus is all about. It's very clear instructions about how people and God live together. Think about if you worked in a nuclear power plant. There's a lot of good that comes from nuclear power. We have a couple not too far from here. But my hunch is those workers go through a lot of training and a very strict manual so they know how to be around all that good energy that's going to provide power and things like air conditioners, which I, I know we're going to need soon, um, or heaters or whatever. Um, but they needed some instruction on how to do this. And so Leviticus is this. And they knew that there was sin that happened And their understanding was that sin broke down the relationship 
between God and people. And in fact, they had this understanding that it actually caused some things to happen inside the temple. It was kind of like a film or something that would, that would be around and get on the holy objects and it would begin to deteriorate some of those things. And so, the sacrificial system was instituted. And what would happen is once a year they would select two animals. And this was to deal with this sin issue so that, again, God and people could live together near each other in great presence, uh, in, in great proximity to one another. And so the priest would take one and would slaughter it. And the priest would, um, would then take the blood. Now, I know for us this seems super gory. Ugh, you know, I don't like this. It's really hard. I mean, if you've ever been around Christians long enough, you've probably heard some kind of song about blood. Making clean, a fountain filled with blood. I mean, who is this, Wes Craven? I mean, is this like horror movie? What, you know, what, what is this? Uh, what they're talking about is that we must remember that blood for the ancient people, remember you have your Nat Geo hat on, was the symbol of life. Somewhere over time, they realized when, when people don't have enough, or animals don't have enough blood in them, they die. So, obviously, blood is required for life. And so, they would take this symbol, and they would take it, and they would, the priest would, would go in, making sure he had followed all the instructions. And, uh, I don't have blood in here, it's water. Okay. Just want to put everybody at ease here. Um, and the priest would go in, so he would take the symbol of life. And he would go in and he would know that there was something kind of on the things because the people had not lived up to their end of the covenant, of the bargain. So he would take something and he would begin to just sprinkle it out there on the walls, on the floors. He would grab hold of the altar and cleanse it and know that this happened. You can think of this maybe like a friend of mine. When I was about Jackson's age, I had a friend whose dad always smoked outside. One day, as a 10-year, 11-year-old kid would do, I asked his, my friend's mom very innocently, why does Harry smoke outside? And she said, well... One day we were doing spring cleaning and we were washing the walls. And you'd never noticed, but as we were washing, there was this film that was all over and we hadn't even noticed it. And Harry, because he loves us, said, if it's doing that to the walls, what's it doing to my wife and my kid? And he still, he wrestled. I don't know if he ever got the victory over his smoking, but he at least knew, I'm going to do this outside. Because they don't deserve that. Think about that. It's sin that would the Israelites believe this is what was going on in the tabernacle. There was some kind of film and it had to be washed off. It had to be cleansed. It had to be... And so he would take the symbol of life and it was life for life to restore the relationship that was damaged by the sin. I know this is, this is a little strange for us, but I need you to understand that all of this was about restoring relationship. It wasn't about gore. It wasn't about trying to appease an angry God. It was about restoring the relationship that was damaged. And they tried some very ancient symbols to help them know that the relationship had been restored and God had given them these instructions so they could be confident to know they could live in God's presence. 
I, I found this in the Jewish Encyclopedia. It says the idea of atonement in the priestly Torah, the law, is based upon a realizing sense of sin as a breaking away from God and of the need for reconciliation with God of the soul that is sin, sinned. Hear the relational nature there. Every sin, whether it be, they had lots of forms of sin, whether it be chet, say chet, a straying away from the path, or avon, say avon, crookedness of conduct, or whether it was pesha, say pesha, rebellious transgression. Whatever it is, it is a severance of the bond of life which, which unites the soul with its maker. So it's important. Atonement is primarily about restoring relationship, not appeasement of an angry God. That's something entirely different. Now, before any of you think, oh, here goes Pastor Jeff, he's preaching that wimpy God who just allows everything. Does God get angry? Yes. If you read the Bible, you'll see God gets angry. But it is not the anger of the gods surrounding Israel at the time. The Canaanite gods, the Egyptian gods, eventually the Babylonian gods, who are just angry all the time and just want to destroy or mess about with their human, these little peons down below. If God is angry, God is angry like a father gets angry. When your child messes up and does something that damages the relationship, you love that child with all your being and you can hold on to something has broken the relationship and it needs to be fixed. And sometimes anger is a motivation to fix it, but it is not the ultimate rationale for wanting to fix the relationship. That's the key. If the relationship, the key is, if I am just so desired to know that the relationship needs to be mended, then you're on the path of atonement. If it's just, oh, God's angry and He's going to send me to hell and, and I just better make this right. Or I, that is not the road to atonement. That is the road to psychosis and spiritual abuse. So I need you to hear that this morning. I need you to know that the goal of atonement, at one being at one with God, is the restoring of the relationship that you know has broken down because of transgression. In fact, the Jewish encyclopedia will go on and saying, it is the feeling of estrangement from God that prompts the sinner to offer atoning sacrifices, not to appease God's anger, but to place his and her soul in a different relation to God. For this reason, the blood, which remember, to the ancients was the life, power, or soul, forms the essential part of the sacrificial atonement. This is the interpretation given by all Jewish commentators, ancient and modern, on the passage. That means this was from the beginning how they understood it. It has never changed. They've always understood that atonement is about relationship. Well, let's leave that for just a second because there's another, there's another animal in the midst of all of this. And that's the scapegoat. We love scapegoats, especially politically nowadays. But the scapegoat was, was one where it was chosen and the priest would come out in the midst of the people. And the priest would lay his hands upon that animal and would begin to confess all the sin of the community. The ways that they had missed the mark, the ways that they had broken down, all the chet and the pesha and the, and the avon, all that he would say over the animal, and then they would drive the animal out of the city. And you just assume that eventually it would be eaten by an, uh, a larger animal, and the circle of life would continue. 
But it was saying, yes, okay, there was the bit that we did in the tabernacle, priest and God. But this is about relationship between people and God. And they need to hear where the relationship has broken down. And then we need to show by driving it out our desire to see the relationship restored. We wanted to drive out all of those things out of our community. Um, we want to have better attitudes. We want to follow the covenant. We want to do that. And we drive this out to show this. Again, the Jewish encyclopedia says, In Mosaic ritualism, the atoning blood thus actually meant bringing about of a reunion with God, the restoration of peace between the soul and its maker. So for what the priest does in there, we can know that the relationship is restored. Therefore, the expiatory, that's a fancy word for atonement sacrifice, was accompanied by a confession of sin for which it was designated to make atonement. And then he quotes a rabbi, a very famous rabbi, who says, no atonement without confession of sin as the act of repentance. So these two come together And help us understand that atonement requires a desire, primarily, for life to be restored. A reuniting of my soul with God in the midst of my everyday life. And a confession of what was it that came between me and God. Does that make sense? Does this help you kind of put all this together a little bit so that uh, you can understand what the writer of Hebrews was doing then? So what does this mean? What does it mean when the writer says Jesus is then superior to this system? Think about this for a second as we move towards our close. Think about this. What does it mean then when God Himself becomes flesh, moves into the neighborhood, and then takes on the priestly role? What does it mean when God in Christ then says the sacrifices and this thing that we've done year after year after year that continues to show that sin has not been dealt with? What does it mean when I come and I say those sacrifices pointed to something, but I am here and You have given me a body and I have come to do Your will, O God? What does it mean when God Himself lets His own blood fall not upon holy relics, but fall upon the very earth itself to cleanse it all from sin, to make it holy once and for all. What does it mean when the blood is not sprinkled upon a priest in his holy vestments, but is falling upon the very people who are killing him and nailing him to that tree? And he makes them holy. And they become the first ones to declare this man was God's son. What does it mean when God Himself places His hands upon Himself and confesses, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It changes everything, my friends. It means that if you right now are worried about your relationship with God, that God has cleared everything from God's side. God said it is no longer about what you are going to try to do to live in this relationship. I'm going to do it all. And you only have now to say, I long for the relationship to be restored. And I long... I'm just going to confess what's gotten in the way. So my friends today, I know, I I got to preaching. Today, my friends, 
Do you need to hear the good news that if you have been longing to know that your relationship with God is restored, that God has done all the work? You have only to say, I long for that too. And here's how I think I've maybe broken the relationship down some. And God says, come to the table. Come, remember, remember the blood and and the broken body. Remember it. Take it in. Somehow that grace that was there is going to cleanse you. And God says, make you holy. It's going to perfect the one who is being made holy. This is our message. This is our hope. Do you long for restoration? Is there anything that has gotten between you and the God who longs to live near you, with you, and in you? If that's you, I know this is a strange passage, but today all you have to do is ask. If you are here, I hope that you will. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Father, Today, we come to this strange passage, but now maybe, maybe with some hope. Maybe with some better understanding. That when the relationship is broken... As someone else would write, this is love. Not that we first loved you, but that you loved us and gave your life as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Not only ours, but for the whole world. That you died for us in the midst of our sin. In the midst of the things that break down relationship. In the midst of our mistakes. In the midst of our rebellion. All of it so burdened you that you came. Became our priest and our sacrifice. And now we have only to accept. We have only to feast. We have only to come to your table and receive from your hand bread and cup that somehow enlivens the Spirit, cleanses us, and makes us holy. Help us to receive with grateful hearts. Help us to confess so that we know what's broken the relationship and help us to receive Your grace and mercy. For we ask all of this through Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it. He said, This is My body, broken for you. Take and eat. This is My blood, shed for the remission of sin. Take and drink. I say this every time, but if you're new here with us, I want you to know that the only thing you need to come and take communion is a hunger for the God who gave everything for you. If that's you this morning, you are welcome, whether this is your first time here or you've been here a bunch. Let us take just a moment 
in the spirit of what we have read today, what we have heard proclaimed, let us take a moment and look at our desire to see the relationship restored. And if there's anything that has broken it, take a moment to say, God, if this is in the way, thank you that you're removing it. Thank you that you're clearing it. Thank you that you're making me holy. Take just a moment. Let's bow our heads and do that. Now know that as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed your sin from you. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ, broken for you, take and eat. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, shed for the remission of sin, once for all, take and drink. Lord, we thank You for your great sacrifice. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for your love and mercy that transforms us. Help us to go from this place filled with your grace and ready to share the good news. We ask this through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. But I want you to hear this this morning. This is where the writer of Hebrews finishes, and I just think it's a great blessing for us today. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that trust in Him brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed pure with pure water. Baptism is next week. We'll look at that one. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is faithful." And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Go in His name. Peace be with you all. Amen. Amen.